Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Drew Dixon. Drew is a music producer and activist who worked her way up from an internship at Jive Records to become a legendary A&R executive at Def Jam and Arister. During her career in the music industry, Drew identified and oversaw the recording of hit records with artists like Whitney Houston, Carlos Santana, Aretha Franklin, Mary J. Blige, Method Man, John Legend, Estelle, Kanye West, and more. So there's a few you know, random, not so big names just to kind of mention those. Drew appears in the HBO Max documentary On the Record, which documents her decision to come forward in the Me Too movement. She's currently producing new music and television content for her company, Claim. In addition to advocating for sexual assault survivors and writing a memoir for Mariner Books. And it is a pleasure for me to have Drew join me on The Deep Dive. How are you? It's a pleasure to be here. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I I feel like we're homies on so many different (laughs) levels, right? Because we we have had an opportunity to have a, a different conversation through, you know, the, the great folks at Net Impact yeah. we had a pre-conversation to that. <laughs> and there's there's a lot of, you know, quite honestly, I think shared space. One, yeah. because you are, as you said, legendary music <laughs> producer. I am a huge fan of of hip hop and music in general. So we we I've sweated to, danced to, <laughs> been tipsy to many of the of the songs that you've made possible. So I, I I feel like you played a formative part of my um of my adult debauchery. Uh, so love so, to hear it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so thank you for for all of that. Uh, but be, before we get into the the music stuff and you know the the importance of of Me Too and your place in that movement, I want to go back uh you know quite a bit further to sort of the role that activism and political realities and awakenings have have played a part in in forming mm. who you are. So if you can kind of take us back a, a little bit to uh, the more formative parts of your kind of social and, and political perspective. Right. Well, yeah, I am a child of politics. Both of my parents were local elected officials in Washington, D.C. My mother was the mayor of D.C. from 91 to 94. So she was the first black woman to be mayor of a major city. My father was a city councilman, the very first Ward 4 city councilman in D.C. when we first got home rule. So when D.C. first got its own local elected government. And my dad was also the chairman of the city council. So I actually worked on three political campaigns before I turned eight. Two of my dad's city council campaigns and his first campaign for chairman. Um, My mom was a treasurer of the Democratic National Party. I went to several of the conventions. Seamless understanding of my identity between who I am as a private citizen and as a person. I was a page at the 88 convention in Atlanta. So I grew up sort of connected to who I am as a citizen of the community 
of the world, and in particular as a Black person, trying to make sure that we were represented, included, and unlocked as much as possible in my sort of journey in life. So that is fundamental to who I am and how I see my role and purpose in the world. And the sort of the political sort of activism that you described, the one of the words that sort of really leapt out on leapt out to me is this idea of community. Mm. You're you're getting an opportunity to see local politics yeah. as as you des- as you describe them. There's also the national yeah. political spirit of the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, how did that that notion of going from the local to the national kind of shape your your understanding of community and, and the power of, of politics to drive change? Well, you know, D.C. is obviously the nation's capital, so it's a federal city. I always saw the local political campaigns that I was a part of as connected to the larger national political landscape. As I mentioned, my mom was treasurer of the Democratic National Party. My parents have both been super uh, members of the Electoral College at different points. You know, I went to the Easter egg roll when Jimmy Carter was president as a kid. So, you know, I always saw them as intertwined. And there was sort of my life as a kid sitting at the kitchen table talking about politics and you know, Marion Barry before Marion Barry became infamous and, you know, maybe Jimmy Carter calling the house or whatever. Um, you know, I really just see it as as one continuum. So my vision of how I show up in the world is connected to this notion of a campaign and a community. You know, my my household was sort of an extension of the campaign headquarters. There were people in and out I often didn't know, is this person a relative? Is this person a volunteer? Is this person a reporter? You know, all I knew is that we were part of a movement to make sure that Black people in Washington got a piece of this pie. You know, we didn't have home rule when I was born. So that was even a fight that I lived through in the first three to four years of my life. And so this notion of community and politics, but also fighting to to be part of the political process was very resonant and fundamental to me. And again, that's part of why, not to get ahead of the conversation, hip hop resonated with me because I saw young, disenfranchised Black kids, creators fighting for the microphone, fighting to be heard as artists and as activists when hip hop was more activist in its very early days, using a genre that wasn't even part of the conversation. So they had to kick down the door just to get on the board to be taken seriously as a genre, as an art form, in the same way that we as Washingtonians had to fight to be able to elect our own officials. And then we were still fighting to be part of the national conversation. We still don't have statehood in D.C. So there's always this notion for me of participating in the process that exists and then fighting and rattling the cage to make the process more fair. So, you know, and the community piece of it, again, bled from my kitchen table to the campaign headquarters, to knocking on doors, to the poll site, to the Democratic National Conventions I attended. You know, it was just one sort of seamless extension of of my purpose and the way I see my purpose and saw my purpose as a kid. You know, I'm I'm, I'm really glad to hear the parallel to the the struggle for um, D.C. residents to to have a a fully franchised voice and the 
and the realities of of hip hop yeah. and and how the music and the culture grew because I think it's it's very easy for those who really didn't grow up mm. in hip hop to a certain extent or didn't or you know just weren't aware of of hip hop it is it is so omnipresent it is so yeah. universal in its in its impact and reach that it is hard for people to remember or fathom a time when that was not the reality at all where as you so eloquently put it hip hop was fighting for even recognition of of itself as a genre Absolutely. i would i would argue recognition of itself as music oh yeah right it, it wasn't respected as 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 music yeah. so with with all of that as a backdrop i want to you know spend a little bit more time on you know how you how you came to be in, inspired and 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 sort of energized by this art form in in the eighties because mm. in 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 my mind it's in, it's impossible to divorce the hip hop of the eighties and I argue early to mid nineties mm-hmm. from the larger social political construct of of Reaganomics and, right. and really neoliberal capitalism taking a firm hold on. The American zeitgeist. I think it's impossible to divorce yeah. those things. So I know I said a lot there, but mm-hmm. I want to give you a chance to kind of just reflect on on all of that. Yeah. Well, to your first point, you know, for a lot of people who aren't our age, who weren't a part of the culture and who didn't live through the sort of ascension of hip hop, as it were, as Biggie said, we never thought hip hop would take it this far. I mean, you know, I believe hip hop was going to survive, last, change the culture and be transformational in a broad, major way. I felt that in my bones, but I don't think any of us could have imagined that it was going to become the global force that it is today. And so that is one thing. And that does map to both my personal experience, like again, DC didn't have local elected officials and my parents knocked on doors and fought for it. And then we did, you know, my mom became becoming the first black female mayor of a major city. That didn't seem possible until it was. You know, I definitely am somebody who believes in asking the question, why not, instead of why, and then you 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 make it happen. And I definitely also feel that the emergence of hip hop was a reflection of what was happening in the culture, the Reaganomics, the war on drugs, which was absolutely just a way to have a war on Black people without calling a war on Black people. I mean, that's documented. That's not speculation. That is actually, there are quotes to that point. And also the fault lines of sort of Black respectability, which was embodied quite ironically in hindsight by the Cosby show. And then you had like Spike Lee, for example, on the other hand, making movies that were platforming public enemy and hip hop and sort of a different version of Blackness and the Black experience that wasn't trying to mimic the kind of polo, Ralph Lauren, dynasty, big shoulder pads, feathered hair, you know, kind of respectable, affluent, aspirational version of what the 80s looked like. Hip hop was like, absolutely doing the opposite. We aren't here to play your game. It wasn't about accommodating that sort of white gaze and that Reaganomics era version of the white gaze. And, you know, 
Jesse Jackson and just to sort of, you know, but then you had Farrakhan like happening sort of at the same time that you had Jesse Jackson, you know, are we playing inside? Are we throwing rocks from the outside? What does progress look like? What does success look like? Is capitalism sort of an appropriate proxy for success? If you're rich, do you win? If you're rich and you're black, are you safe? You know, I think then we thought maybe the answer was yes. Now we know the answer is no, right? I think we know the answer is no. I think we also now know that 10 black billionaires doesn't make black people free, right? I think then we thought maybe it would. And so I think hip hop emerged at a time that American culture was sort of fighting with all of those ideas of what progress looked like, of what success look like, and then Black people obviously always living within the sort of broader American experience, wrestling with some of those same questions and trying to figure out which levers we could pull to move forward as a people and as a culture. Where does capitalism fit? Where does respectability fit? Where does defiance fit? Where does Black pride fit? Where does Afrocentrism fit versus where does sort of you know, misogyny and the glamorization of wealth fit, you know, and I think that war was raging really in early hip hop and I believe was won by the nihilism, the misogyny and the capitalism. And that's what we have today. And I'm not so sure that was a win for the culture, but it has certainly been a win for a lot of very successful people who were part of the game. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is this is something that, you know, always gives me like I'm I'm wrestling with a lot of stuff mm. when it comes to to hip hop mm-hmm. because it's it's li- literally and I I've used this a lot that it is my music mm. meaning like it is the music that was intrinsically and only my own right right it wasn't my sister's music mm. it wasn't my parents' music it was the music that was embraced by myself and my peers. And it was also unique from R&B, which is kind of, and soul, which is always around, but you know, it was just different, right? Hip hop was different in men in so many ways. Like my social and political education was born of hip hop, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. But hip hop has a lot of fucked up stuff in Mm -hmm. it, right? And so I go back and forth between reckoning with all of the amazing things that I that I got out of this music and still get out of this mm-hmm. music versus the other things the the misogynist yeah. the um the misogyny the the nihilism all the things that you that you highlighted mm-hmm. with also I'll throw in another caveat and this is where the question is going to come in okay properly contextualizing all of that within the backdrop of a system that promotes all of those things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So what I'm what I'm basically trying to do is hold people mm-hmm. and structures accountable, mm-hmm. while also trying to figure out where does blame lie mm-hmm. within us surviving mm-hmm. all of all of that shit that mm-hmm. I just that I just said, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm curious as to as to what you think about all of those things, right? Because I don't I don't have an right. answer, right? And I and I go back and forth on this quite a bit. And I, re- I remember in the net impact piece, 
there was a, a, a lot of comments coming in. You might not have noticed, mm. but there were like some comments coming in the chat that were very pointed about, well, we just can't promote music that harms our, mm. our women, mm. right? And I agree with that, mm-hmm. but I'm also like society is harms women, right? Right. Like right. hip hop didn't didn't Inventa. create no. harming women. Right. But that doesn't let hip hop off the hook. Right. <laughs> right? right. So th- th- I don't know. I just said a lot. Yeah. But like I want to get your your reflections on some of that, all of that. And we'll just keep yeah. it moving. Yeah. Well, for sure. There is a system here. There is a system. There's a cultural system. And then there's a music industry system. And hip hop did not invent misogyny. Black people didn't invent misogyny. It exists, obviously, in the broader culture. And one of the things that's challenging, and there are so many things that are challenging about being Black in America, is that you have to do a lot of things at once. Um, One of them is survive (laughs) in a system that is designed to destroy you. Uh, The other thing is hopefully try to thrive in a system that is designed to destroy you. And then the third thing you have to do, I think, even if you're not conscious, but if you're really conscious, you do it, I think, with a really great degree of intention is to change the system. So you're trying to survive, you're trying to thrive, and then you're trying to change it, as opposed to just waking up every day and walking out your house in a system that is ready made for you to win. And that's really why it's called white privilege. The system is set up, even if they're not at the top of the hierarchy, and I'm not taking anything away from the struggle of the capitalist boot on the back of many white people in this country, for sure. But the system is designed for us to fail, suffocate, and then to perpetuate that. So as Black artists, as hip-hop artists, executives, creators, really, in the beginning, it was survive, thrive, right? And while doing that, mimic and amplify the existing status quo, which is misogynist. I would argue, however, that it is much more dangerous for us to mimic that than it is for other people to mimic that. Because we can't afford to play injured because we are already at the bottom of the pile in a system that is set up not to call fouls against us. You know, like we don't we don't get the the ref is not calling for us like the ref is calling for everybody else. Okay, and, you know, we brush by somebody and we're getting called, you know, they're going to the line to shoot like that's how the game is set up. So we can't play injured. And when we hurt ourselves, we play injured. And when we hurt our women we play injured. And so my argument is, I'm not saying that they aren't misogynist. I'm not saying that mainstream music and mainstream culture isn't misogynist and isn't sexist and isn't super problematic and that there aren't executives in the broader culture that aren't harming their women. We know this from Harvey Weinstein and other many other examples, but we season our food. They don't season their food. I mean, do we have to do everything that they do? Like, I'm going to stay seasoning my food, whether or not they season their food. Right. Like I'm a I'm a clap when I clap, whether whether or not they clap when I clap. Like it's not like we can't do things our way. It's not like we can't raise the bar when we want to. Right. And so why don't we just make a decision to raise the bar when it comes to the way we deal with the women in our culture, the way we deal with rape culture in the black community and in black music. And that's where black men really have to look at their own privilege. And the fact that they are mimicking a white supremacist patriarchal model when they are abusive of women. And they're not just mimicking that. They are amplifying 
something that happened in the transatlantic slave trade. I don't know if I talked about this in the net impact interview, but in the middle passage, all of the women who averaged age 15, so we're actually talking about black enslaved girls, were all raped. Not a theory. I visited the slave castles in Ghana and I was in the courtyard where there are two cannonballs attached to the courtyard. And I was like, why are these attached to the courtyard? And then the guide showed us that they are basically the stance that you would take if you stood with your legs separated enough for you to be raped. That's what those cannonballs are there for. They are a structural part of the slaves where we were held. And the women, girls, were raped there, one after the other, because it was an economically advantageous decision. You didn't even have to be a rapist or a sadist. You just had to want to increase the value of your merch, which was us. And the Black men who attempted to defend those women were taken to a cell, which I went into, called a condemned cell. And there is a skull etched over it. And you go in there and it's about the size of like, if you went underneath like a large dining room table, that's kind of the size. And you go in there and they shut the door and it is pitch black and there's no windows and it's sweltering. And then the guy turns in a flashlight and there are nail marks, scratch marks. That's where the black men who attempted to defend the black girls who were being raped were taken to die. So if you want to emulate that, go on ahead, turn a blind eye to black women and girls being sexualized, objectified, and violently abused in our music and in our culture. Because that was the design, y'all. That's the blueprint. They don't even have to take you into the cell anymore. If you're going to stand there and dance to music, talking about, it ain't no fun if my homies can't have some. And by the way, I used to dance to that too. Because, you know, I'm, we're all sort of gaslit here in America. Every Black person in this country is gaslit by this culture, this culture that watered down the violence against Black bodies, that had to be watered down and normalized in order for people who aren't violent and terrible to sit on their front porches, sipping their lemonade and their mint juleps while brutality was happening to us all around them every single day. They had to normalize it so that the women wouldn't wonder why the enslaved girls, women were pregnant by children that came out looking like me. To normalize it, you have to say they're just licentious. They're hyper libidinous. They're hypersexual. They want it, right? Otherwise, how do you live with yourself? How do we live with ourselves? But I'm just saying, I'm going to keep seasoning my food and I'm going to question the way Black women and girls are sexualized, used, because I'm not going to walk into that condemned cell for them. And I'd ask every Black man to think about whether or not he wants to be the guy that's in that cell. We don't have to go in the cell or the guy that turns the blind eye. And I'm not judging the brothers that turn the blind eye because, I mean, what was your option? Right. I mean, but we have options now. So that's why, yes, I understand it's a system. I understand people are trying to get paid. I understand you can't really do much if you can't even pay your bills. But we kind of are past that now. We got Jay-Z. We got Beyonce. We got the Obamas. We got Oprah. We got we got we make it move. Why don't we start making choices, too, about the harm we are doing to ourselves and the water we are carrying for that old model if we don't challenge it? You know, I think, thank you for, for all of that, you know, because I think it, it is critical to, you know, really frame the incredibly high price that is paid for 
extractive economics, extractive politics that are deeply rooted in in violence. Mm-hmm. And what you what you really see is the the long tail mm. of this, mm-hmm. right? Where when it's every person for themselves, mm-hmm. then it becomes very you know, your operating model is just that, right? Like you can't be overly concerned or worried about another person if it's sink or swim, and, yeah. you know, all the other right. analogies, right? So if I'm going to make it, there can only be one, right? right? Like, and, and, and hip hop is, I think, uniquely positioned to have that there can only be one mentality, mm. right? The notion, the notion of the battle, mm, right? Mm-hmm. The the battle is in it's intrinsic in one upping mm. another another person, right? Mm. To what extent we've normalized that as as you know, we just playing the dozens or mm-hmm. you know, we just fucking around. Yeah. And it be but it becomes other things. It becomes right. sometimes serious things, sometimes deadly things, yeah. you know, for those of us who kind of live live through that as part of hip hop. So, you know, I I like this, this notion that you touched upon about modeling different behaviors, Mm -hmm. right. Modeling different systems. You know, you came into the the industry, you know, I'm going to just tell a little bit of the story, but you can tell it yourself. I'm just setting it up that, you know, you, you came in right bottom, right. Willing to do anything to kind of make it through. Not anything. I mean, you know what I mean. When I like as an intern, yes. like willing to do the, the professional things. Oh my god. Yeah. To do the professional things required to um make it in the music industry. Right. And and had incredible success in, in doing that, mm-hmm. but then faced a lot of the extractive abuse and violence mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I, I want to give you an opportunity to the extent that you're comfortable to share whatever you want to share about that story, because I I think it can help us begin to model other types of, of behavior. Because I, mm. I, even with all these stories, I'm not sure if people understand how subtly pervasive extraction and violence can work mm. in, in an industry. So I'm, I'll, I'll leave the floor to you to, to weave some of your story in there as we start to think about alternatives. Right. Well, yes, I did come into the industry at the very bottom. I started as an intern at Jive Records in the college promotions department. I was excited to work at Jive, even though I was only getting paid, I think it was $250 a day, which was my subway fare back then, $125 each way. And because I loved the roster, they had Tribe, um, they had BDP, you know, uh, Boogie Down Productions. And I was like, okay, this is like a real rap label. I'm just happy to be in the building. Um, they also had Too Short, which is super problematic from a misogynistic standpoint, but I'd gone to college in the Bay Area, so I was a Too Short fan. And I was like, okay, they're, they're, they got the West Coast, they got the East Coast, I'm down. So, you know, I did that only for like a month. I got a job after that at Warner Brothers in the college promotions department. So I'm now I'm at Rockefeller Center making four twenty five an hour. So it's a big promotion, which is actually why I had to take it because it actually, my mom knew I had this offer and was like, you have to take that because it's more money. I actually would mail out the records to the college promotions, you know, the radio stations, and then call to make sure they got it. That was my job. And then I would try to hang up real quick. And they're like, well, is it good? And I'd be, this is promotions. I was like, it's whack. It's whack. So whack. Because I'm like, I, my taste is everything, right? And it was like Warner Brothers rap roster was terrible. You know, they had like Nubian Mob. Like it was bad. Like the only thing they had that was good was Miles Davis had made kind of a rap 
ish album called Doobop. And I was like, that's good. Yeah. You know, and yeah, I remember that record. It was pretty cool, you know, but so I did that. And then I got the first job that like a little bit like I was getting closer to where I really wanted to be Empire Artist Management. I was a receptionist. And that is where I did all kinds of things that were like not what I thought would be in my job description. Like I literally cleaned the office and I cleaned the bathroom because it was filthy. And when I really got in there and cleaned it, I realized the dirt was holding the toilet together and the toilet slid in half. Like when I really got in there and got the grime out from like all the little nooks and crannies, the toilet, I kid you not, it split in half. And the solution of my bosses, it was two white guys, Neil and Patrick, who ran this management company that represented Gangstar as a group. We were doing the Jazzmatazz album at the time, a tour. Premier as a producer also was there. Jay the Damager and a couple of other artists and some, some dance hall artists as well. And, you know, their solution was to just literally pee in the general direction of the broken toilet. Like that was it. I was like, wait, you're not going to replace. And I was the only woman. It was them, this guy who had actually gotten me the job, a friend of mine who was now working at their, they had a label at Polygram. So he was in the Polygram building with like AC and bathrooms. And I was the new receptionist and like no AC, like, Literally, I would hold the phone up to my ear and it would like shoot out because of the sweat. Like it was just, I was so hot. There were no windows that would open. And if you open the only door, straight up and down, drug addicts would wander in. This was the Lower East Side in 1993, 92, 93. It was hectic. Okay. Like I once stepped over a whole entire body in a pool of blood once coming to work. But I was like, there were other people there. I was like, okay, somebody else will call the police. I'm just going to move on. But I mean, it was hectic. And so like I go to the bathroom would have to like put the phones on hold and I would either go to the blockbuster the bodega the pizza parlor I literally had like toilet paper in my purse and like wipes and like would have to pick a different place each day because I was trying to like mix it up you know I survived on a snapple and a slice of pizza per day but I was working with premiere for god's sakes I was working with premiere I was working with jasmine I was working with gangster I was like I am yes I'm this is cool you know sending invoices booking studios all of that and then I got my first not answer phone job, Zombie Music Publishing, where I signed Knox to a publishing deal before Illmatic. I signed Eric Sermon to a publishing deal. And then I got my first job doing what I really came to New York to do, A&R, Adeption, recording Russell Simmons. I thought I'd won the lottery. And to your point, and this is a long answer, I was so busy on my grind, looking at my goal, get to a real rap label and make rap records. So that was either going to be Def Jam, maybe Tommy Boy, maybe Profile, maybe jive if i could have gone back to jive but def jam was really the dream right and i, I def jam was the label that was the label and i got it i mean it was my dream come true until it was my nightmare come true which was the sexual harassment that started almost right away first it was verbal then it was him exposing himself to me then it was physically sort of touching me and i came up with strategy after strategy to avoid being in situations where i might be alone in a room with him but I couldn't completely cut him off because he gave me my job and he was the only one that would let me do things. Like when I had the idea for the Mary Meth duet that became, I'll be there for you, all I need to get by, Russell let me do it, right? He gave me a soundtrack to put together. He told me to make a remix for Montel Jordan's This Is How We Do It. Like I got to sign two reggae artists, right? Like I got to actually do things if I would call him or get his attention like by meeting him like in the car or at a restaurant and get him to like focus for five minutes. I could get projects and green lights and budgets and do things but I also had to navigate him then 
sexualizing me, which at first I thought was just sort of like annoying. Then it became like really problematic and an obstacle I had to like navigate on. So, so earlier I talked about how black people have to survive, thrive, change the system all while navigating the systemic sort of oppression and anti-blackness. Well, as a woman, I have to do, as a black woman, I have to do that. And then I also have to navigate a whole different version of systemic oppression, which is men objectifying me, men harassing me, you know, men undervaluing me, men not seeing like, no, actually I can do everything Puffy does at least as well as Puffy does it. If you would just literally stop putting me in this other box and you could just let me do the thing I do. Um, Getting in the, getting in the way, getting in the way. And so I endured and tried to navigate around this like endless barrage of harassment. One, because I understood I made a choice to do something that I wasn't supposed to do in the first place, which was come to New York City and make rap records as a woman from Stanford, whose mom was the mayor of DC. Like nobody thought I should be doing this. I was supposed to like go to law school, right? I was not supposed to do this in the first place. So I didn't want to complain. I wanted to just get on the board with a success and prove that I was right. This is the call to make. I belong here. I have something to contribute here. And I didn't want to complain. I just wanted to deliver, right? And so I thought I could navigate it because I really thought it was annoying and not dangerous. And that's a whole separate issue having to do with childhood trauma where I override red flags because I had to override red flags to survive in my childhood. And I overrode the the real level of the red flag that I was looking at when I was encountering Russell Simmons, really because I just wanted to succeed. And I did not realize I was dealing with somebody who wasn't just like annoying and like sexualizing me, but also giving me opportunities. I was dealing with a violent predator. And I didn't realize that until I was literally in a situation where I was unsuccessful in my attempt to fight, which I did fight and unsuccessful in my attempt to flee. And I did try to flee. And so I ultimately froze. And so I have lived the misogyny and the rape culture of hip hop in the actual flesh. And in my job, however, I tried to honor everything I loved about hip hop while making records that I believed at the time. And I believe looking back at the records I touched and helped to make elevated hip hop in a way that was still cool and dope and hot. But also, if you really listen to every record that I was a part of, you know, women are empowered, you know, it's love, you know, it's the best of who we are and who we can be. And that is the mark I tried to make in my career and that I'm still trying to make in the years that I have left in the game in whatever way I'm able to do that. And, you know, even though we've, I've heard you share some of your story, it, it never, it never ceases to be just like very emotional Mm. and painful to hear Mm. because, you know, I have a lot of questions, but I'm like trying to figure out which, which ones are centering like the right part Mm. of this. Right. Because I, I think like the, there's one part of me that hears all of that and there's outrage at the violence that, Mm. that you, that you had to endure, which not a doctor, but is clearly traumatic. Right. And then I think about all of the emotional, psychological, and imagination capture that goes into surviving Mm -hmm. rather than just doing the job you're supposed to do, right? Like you have to think through X number of steps just to navigate a meeting based on the predatory habits of of the person empowered to, to let you do 
your work, yeah. right? And then the, the twist of it is they kind of, they let you do the thing, but it comes with such a heavy price, right. right? So I wonder like, to what extent you have thought about that? What what do you think about that when you look back at that career and hear those hear those records? Like, what does that feel like for you? Know, you? The more distance I have, I mean, I really didn't listen to the records I made for maybe a decade or more because it was too painful. It wasn't really until I said me too in December, 2017. And then I was asked to be a, a part of a documentary, as you mentioned on the record, which is now on HBO max. And I started to really, I had to give them a list of all the records I helped to make. And they put a Spotify playlist together. I think HBO max did that's on Spotify called Drew Dixon's impact. And the farther away I get from it, the more amazed I am that I was able to have the impact I did have. And I hope I'm not done, but I will talk in the past tense about what I've done so far, because I never, ever got a clear look at the basket. I mean, I was always shooting with a hand in my face and drawing a foul and not getting to go to the line. I mean, what you see, what I made, I made under duress. You know, like I was able to get those shots off. And a lot of them were like beautiful, three-point, clean, swoosh buckets. My Love is Your Love, which I helped to make. I found that for Whitney. I found Maria Maria's for Carlos Santana. I found a Rosa Silla Rose for Rita Franklin. I found Nobody's Supposed to Be Here for Deborah Cox. You know, I a would The Boy Is Mine. You know, Heartbreak Hotel. I signed Q-Tip, put out Vibrant Thing, Breathe and Stop. I signed Brand Newbie and we did Reunion Album Foundation. You know, I mean, I made joints in traffic, getting no fouls called. And I'm in awe of the person, the young woman I was that I don't think I had a lot of empathy for at the time. I just kept throwing myself back out there without really acknowledging how much pain I was in and the toll it was taking. And now that I'm healthier and I'm in therapy, I'm like, wow. Like I have a lot of empathy and grief for that woman I kept standing back out to play injured who kept hitting. And I have a lot of grief and hope, frankly, that I get an opportunity to hit again. Give me a clean shot. Give me, I still have the ears. I still have the understanding. Give me a clean, sh- give me a look. Somebody set a pick for me, please. Scream, anything, yeah. you know? And I just think, what could I have done with a clean shot? And that is frustrating. It's painful. And um, it's not fair. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um, and it, it's like, I'm, I'm not, trying to put any attention on me as the interviewer or the person doing the show. But I thought ab- about this quite a lot, right? Even even when we're doing the net impact thing, because I I know your career because like I said, I lived your right. career. Meaning the the music, the 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 tracks when you talk <laughs> when you went through that list, um I those records are are deeply important records. Right. right? They're good records, number one, and then <laughs> they're also you. deeply important records. And so, you know, if I was if I was talking to, let's say that 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 had been made, all of this stuff had happened with the guy, right? Mm-hmm. I'd just be talking about the music, right. right? Right. But because of all of the things that we've talked about, and and me too, and and you know the 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 painful things you had to experience, we have to talk about those things, yeah, because they're super important. But I don't, this my editorial, like, I don't want that to be like the only thing that we're talking about. Not because it's not important, it's yeah. incredibly important, 
but because I'm like, yo, you just killed it with like a million records, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, 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 how do we? Well, but I think getting to the sec to the to the to what can be new, right? Mm. Like, what can we do structurally better? Like you said, you're still in the game. I'm still right? in the game. I'm still alive and well, and I believe I could hit again if I could get a look. Of course, I have people who have invested in me. I'm super grateful to those people. I think what they don't realize, and they're amazing, like my investors have primarily been white sort of Silicon Valley people. I don't think they realize just how deep the structural damage has been to my like personal life. So the hole that they're filling to get me a shot has also had to fill a hole just to get me like standing and then get the shot. And I'm still trying to get it all together so I can really get the shot. You know, I, I think that what can, what can be different, right? You know, Nothing happens in a vacuum. So black culture, hip hop, music doesn't happen in a vacuum. We're still in the same America that doesn't want to teach people about the history of the people, you know, throwing rocks at the kids integrating the schools. Like the people who don't want to teach that are the people who were throwing the rocks or the kids are the people that were throwing the rocks. And the people that... Exactly. Like that's real history, right? That's Live, real like, history. Those people are still alive. It They're wasn't still that long alive. ago. And the wealth <laughs> creation, the wealth disparity that came from our ancestors being property and our ancestors being raped to generate property, more property, that wealth disparity persists, right? And so, and the impetus and the incentive to, to maintain that status quo persists. And so I hate to say this, but I don't think it's a coincidence that maybe the guy that got the rock and got the look was also a sexual predator, an anti-Black sexual predator. Russell Simmons is anti-Black. Okay, he raped women who are white adjacent in appearance in many cases. He gave black people rush cards and took all their money. I mean, this is not, he's not for us, he's for him. He's for himself. Okay, and so I think we need to examine who they're giving the rock to, you know, who they are letting determine who controls this culture. You know, is it the men who would have died in that condemned cell? Or is it the ones that look the other way? I think it's the ones that look the other way. And I think we need to make sure that the people that we fight for to have positions of power in our country and in our culture are the people that would have ended up in that cell but aren't in that cell now. Give me the rock. Give you the rock. Don't give the rock to people who are skin folk but not kin folk who would be more than happy to get rich off of the denigration of our people. We're not going to win like that. Yeah. Let's demand more for ourselves. Just because you're a woman doesn't mean you care about these issues. Maybe you played the game. Maybe you led me to the slaughter. I was led to the slaughter both at Def Jam and at Arista Records with L.A. Reid by women. Women tried to, yeah. when I was going out of my way to avoid being alone in rooms with both Russell Simmons and later L.A. Reid, there were women who bamboozled me into the situations where I ended up vulnerable to those men. So let's make sure we put people in positions of power and fight for them who are going to actually care. That's how the culture is going to change. That's how the records are going to change and still be dope, but be responsible and dope. And how do we, how do we recognize these, these pitfalls, you know, when oftentimes the the pitfalls, though they, they though they might be obvious, some of them are assumed, right? Like like we like you mentioned earlier that you didn't want to complain. Like I think to a certain extent, 
like I just remember growing up. So again, not trying to put it on on me, but I think these are general black things, yeah. right? That we were taught or or encouraged to not complain, yeah, right? To be a team player, to suck it up, to just get along, don't say too much, like be lucky to be there, yeah, and then things will get better. Like so, there's a certain degree of cooked in suffering, yeah. And I I know I heard from the older people when Absolutely. I was Absolutely. Right. Like, well, oh, you got a, you got a job. What do you got to complain about? Right? Like just helplessness. Yeah. So so how, so a lot of times when you're you've in kind of in you've taken all of that in as sort of like your blueprint. Now the things that we that should be flashing at us as danger, yeah, are just eh, there's danger right. everywhere, right? So just normalize get, get through it, right? Like in your so, it. Yes. So, so how do we how do we push to, to move past that or do better with it? And the black community is huge because mm-hmm. I think a lot of us have post-traumatic slave disorder <laughs> and we have learned that, you know, we have to get along to go along. You know, it's even like I'm sure you had this experience. Every black family I know we can't act a fool in the restaurant. We can't act a fool in the grocery store. We can't act a fool at the beach. We can't act a fool at the pool because we are literally brand ambassadors for all black people. And so you learn to be like respectable and you learn to just sort of suffer in silence and be 10 times as good, forget twice as good, 10 times as good. And I think that served us when we were at a different state in this struggle. I think now we have the internet, which also is incredibly liberal, uh, it, it is incredibly empowering because it eliminates the gatekeepers in terms of our ability to communicate and to find each other. And we're just at a different stage, I think, in our progress here. And I think we need to reevaluate that get along, go, you know, keep quiet, get along to go along kind of thing, which I did for 22 years by not telling anybody what happened to me in the meet, you know, in, in terms of the sexual abuse I experienced in the industry. And now it's like, we got to, we got to, we got to shake the table. You know, I think, and, and I learned in therapy to say, ouch, like I learned in therapy to acknowledge when I was in pain, I learned in therapy. That's why I look back now at what I went through in my career. And I want to just weep in a way that I didn't even process it when I was going through it, because I now have a greater ability to understand my own suffering. And I think we need to learn as Black people to heal from the ways we had to just be silent to survive. Now we have to be loud and honest with ourselves about our pain to do more than survive, but to thrive. And in the same way that I think we as Black people need to spend time in therapy, processing pain and grief, I think we as a culture need to call it out in real time. And I remember once, I'm going back now to 1994, a meeting at Def Jam, and Russell was in the building, which was not typical. He came in for a meeting about Boss, a rapper, and I'd gone to Houston and worked with her on her record. Yeah, yeah, I remember her. And he wanted to have an album cover or a single cover where she had a gun either in her mouth or pointed at her head. And he ran around the table and was like, should the gun be in her mouth or should the gun be pointed at her head? And when he got to me, I was like, well, I was in Atlanta. I mean, Houston, I was in Atlanta with D, her DJ working on a record with Organized Noise, separate issue. I was in Houston with Boss. And I was like, nothing about this record is suicidal. And one of the reasons I loved Boss before I even got to New York and came to Def Jam is that, or maybe I was in New York, but came to Def Jam is that she's actually badass and powerful. 
why how how about neither why does she need to be trying to kill herself like why yeah, does the like, one female rapper why are those the options on death jam have to be suicidal and he was like shut the fuck up nobody wants to hear from you stanford oh my god you know and that was just me like in a moment trying to be like wait but what and that was one thing and the record never even came out so i don't think it ever got that far but you know trying to be the person at the table in the room in the meeting that's like but why like why does, does she have to be suicidal why can't she have it any clothes why should that be the record you know why is that the lyric why is this okay for me at work like why you know find somebody that you can tell i don't know maybe not in the organization but at least the first step is noticing it's not right in your spirit and owning that and making space for that and email yourself if you have to email yourself and keep emailing yourself, yuck, ouch, ick. And then if you have a bunch of emails that are yuck, ouch, ick, examine that, maybe forward it to somebody and figure yeah. out what to do. So I think it's speaking out and just starting to demand that something change little by little, person by person, moment by moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we have to figure out a, a, a better way forward. I, I, I would agree with you that I think the, the nihilism I'll say is winning. <laughs> I won't, I won't yeah. say it. It's one because we got to always, winning. yeah, we always got to push back, right? Like we have to continue to provide um, different ways forward, different alternatives. You know, I'm, I'm checking the time because I know I promise <laughs> you we get out of here in about an hour or so. I actually said 45 minutes. I don't know why. <laughs> um, but My I, I want to get long. <laughs> no, you know fault. what? The answers aren't, aren't long. I think the issues are complex mm -hmm. and they're emotional, yeah. right? And they, and they also need, to be, I think, handled with the respect, mm, right? Like we can, we can go on for a long time on this, yeah. right? Because we've barely, I think, scratched the, the surface on, on really understanding the legacy of these things, mm. right? And, and how mm. they, how they live with us and, mm -hmm. and, and impact us and, and all of those things. So Answers weren't too long. We just don't have enough time. Um, I, I, I want to get to the to the two um, final sections of the show. Okay. The first being off the dome, you know, a homage, obviously the way we do hip hop, <laughs> where it's an opportunity for just some rapid fire questions. Okay. And want to get your your thoughts on them, right? Okay. So the first one I know is going to be hard, and I understand I'm putting you on the spot, but that's what this is for, right? Okay. You have all of these amazing tracks that you've listed. Mm. If you had to pick one of them, that is your your go-to track, that if that we're putting your work in the Smithsonian, mm. you know, we're, we're sending this track out into the universe to, to reach future people, you know, what's the track that you want to say, this is Drew Dixon's stamp? Mm. Wow. Um, and it's got to be a track. It can't be an album. <laughs> A track. Yeah, I'm not gonna let you get away with an album. Okay. A track. <laughs> uh. You know what? I'll I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll adjust the question. If a track you were gonna think of is not on the album you would name, you can give me both. Okay. Um, you know, I think I would say I'll be there for you, the Mary Meth duet. It's hip hop, it's R and B, it's soul, it's black love, it's it's got swag, it's a dope record just on the strength. And it was 100% my idea when I heard an interlude and I was 23 years old. So that is probably the single track that I would say defines the way I see the world, the way I saw hip hop, the way I saw my role in the culture was to make those kinds of things happen. 
if I had to pick an album, I, you know, I, Whitney's album comes to mind, My Love Is Your Love, but I, I wasn't, I, I would say if I had to pick an album, I would go with Brand Nubian Foundation. Okay. Where I was just really proud to bring a real hip hop record into a building like Arista. And it is a testament to hip hop and just blackness and soul. And it won five mics. <laughs> yeah. So at, a, at, I, a, at a time also when the music was in a different place. Yeah, right? pushing against that grain. So I would go with the Foundation album by Brand Nubian. Okay. My, my second question is, again, another music question. You know, you've obviously, you know, you got A&R, you got the ear, as you, as you highlighted. Is there an artist that you encountered in your career that you were like, damn, this is going to be surefire monster artists that just didn't make it? that you kind of look back on and be like, how did they not make it? <laughs> hmm. Well, I, I mean, there's one who I know how they didn't make it, you know, and oh, well, there's two that come to mind. One is an artist named Toya that I signed and okay. her album was fire and she didn't make it because Ellie Reed punished me by pulling all the resources from her project because I wouldn't meet him in his hotel room. Another artist that I signed that didn't make it and I know now why they didn't, I was too early in my career to fight as hard as I should have to bring in outside songs, Edith Swish. It was a five-piece, all-black, all-female rock band out of Atlanta. They hmm. were absolutely hot fire. I auditioned them two weeks into my job at Arista. I had Clive come in from his country house for the weekend. He's like, this better be good. And it was, and it became a five-label bidding war that I won. And the lead singer, Dion Gibson, is now, she does like, I think, like kind of those R&B musicals and kind of Tyler Perry type stuff. But, oh, just a star. I mean, she looked like Penny from Good Times, like baby Janet Jackson, but was like maybe 19 or 20, but sang like, sings like Tina Turner meets Janis Joplin, just types of life. And that is one that I just hate that it got away from me. You know, I signed them, but I didn't, I didn't have the confidence to push them to make the record they could have made that could have been just like a juggernaut. Yeah, that's that's that they sound amazing. That sounds like a uh like it was built for the Afro punk of today. Yeah. Right? Yes, exactly. 100%. <laughs> Absolutely. So I got I got two more for you. We've talked a lot about the world that we inhabit and but I know you're a reader, you watch a lot of stuff. You know, you're a, someone who keeps an eye on on culture and, and all kind of different things. So, having said all that, is there a a fictional world that you've come across in, in a book or a show or a movie that you would say to yourself, you know what? I, I would, I would check that spot out if it was real. <laughs> mm. Huh? No, I, I don't know that I, I'm trying to create one. I have a TV series okay. called Reciprocity, which is about five women who were all in the thick of it in the early nineties in hip hop. And in the present day, one of them disappears and they basically have to reconvene to solve the mystery of her disappearance, but we end up exploring why all of them disappeared in different ways. And they're empowered in the present day. And we get to wave our hands in the air. Like we just don't care as we flash back to the nineties to solve the mystery. That is something I'd love to bring to life. If anybody out there is listening with TV showrunner connects, let me know. All right. That is lives in my head as kind of the answer to that question. Okay. So that's the, that's the world that's taking up the space. Yeah. In your that's head. taking up the space. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. All right. And I'm good. And this, the last one, if you had to give yourself a historical nickname, the mm. way we have like Catherine the great, 
right? <laughs> like what what would be your historical nickname? Mm, uh, wow. And you don't have to be modest. Like, so don't <laughs> don't give me the modest answer. Uh, I would say something like Drew the Clutch. Drew the Drew the real one. Like Drew okay. the authentic. Drew the authentic. Drew the truth. All right. Like I bring the truth. I bring my heart. I bring my soul. I bring my A game. And I bring my love. I bring my culture. I bring my people. So Drew the truth. I love that. I love that. Perfect. <laughs> so we're going to get to the, the final segment, which is called the drop. And the drop is an opportunity for us to share anything at all with our listeners that we think they should check out. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go first. I only have one drop okay. this week. And his artist called um, Barty Strange. I've, I've mentioned him on the show probably like, I don't know, two years ago, maybe a year and a half, whenever he had his first um, record come out. But his latest record has come out maybe three weeks by the time we're recording this, uh, maybe a little longer by the time people are listening to it. But it's called Farm to Table. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just a really good listen. It's, it's kind of been on, on one of my regular rotations. So I encourage folks to check out Barty Strange Farm to Table. And that's mm. my drop. So you're Gosh, up. What are, I, what are you recommending for us? Oh, man. And I was like supposed to prepare for this one. And I, I've i been like maybe even getting my son set up at basketball camp. I don't know that I have a great answer to this. I I biased my cousin DJ Khalil is a dope-ass producer. So like he just worked on Kendrick's album. You know, I okay. love like everything that my cousin makes. <laughs> So I am biased. I'm going to say that. And then I'm a Bias big fan good. of Amy Aniobi. She was a writer in Insecure. I'm working with her on something new. This isn't really like a creative thing, but she's got this new thing called Super Special. It's her company. And she's helping young writers get in the TV game. And I'm super inspired by her. So those are kind of two people I'm inspired by. Okay. Awesome. That works. <laughs> that works. You know, I, I, I'm not sure if I did your story and your work justice, but I tried my best. I really, oh, I really you. can't thank you enough for um, bringing the truth, uh, being being you. true to truth, and and sharing um, so much with with all of us. You know, because your work is is an incredible is both an incredible legacy and an incredible promise. Because I know mm. there's going to be a lot more to come. You oh, know, so I want to I want to thank coach. you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I want to. I want to thank you for being on on the deep dive with me. Sincerely. Thank you for having me. So much fun. Great to be here. Thank you. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.